0: Uh, One announcement before I ask you to stand for uh, the reading of God's Word, I want to take a moment and address something that I know is on many of your minds, uh, and that's the COVID-19 virus. Here's what I want to say, and here's what we want to say as a church on the practical side uh, of this. First thing's this, we will as a church, of course, uh, wisely abide by any recommendations uh, that the Canadian government uh, imposes or asks us to abide by as it pertains to public gatherings, all that kind of stuff. And so, as a church, we're going to abide uh, by what the government suggests. Second thing is this we have a bottle of hand sanitizer at the back. If you want to use that at any time at the Connect table, go ahead. It's yours to use. Just don't take it. We need it uh, for further gatherings, obviously. Uh, also, too, if you're not comfortable coming and taking communion from somebody holding uh, the cup and the bread, you can come down here, uh, grab a little gluten-free crack or dip it in the wine or the juice uh, and serve yourself communion if you are concerned about that. Uh, that's totally um, cool. That's the practical stuff. But I also think we need to speak uh, to our hearts in this moment. COVID-19 has exposed some very ugly things about us as a society that we would prefer to think that we are better than. Racism, shameless self-interest, a mistaken belief in our invincibility, to name just a few. Let me remind us of a few things as it pertains to this virus and this pandemic. The first is this. In our Proverbs series, we learn that true righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another person. Really clear application here. Don't empty the shelf at Costco without thinking of the person behind you in line. That's just a really easy way for you to be a Christian in this time right now. Second thing is this trials always expose what is really going on in our hearts. They always expose that. If you have been gripped by fear over the last few weeks, uh, it is worth asking what is gripping your heart? Like, what are you afraid of, of losing? This is not to say that we are not wise or prudent as Christians. But Christian, let me remind you, your hope, your reward, your life is not in this world. is not in this place. When plagues ravaged the early church and the pagans fled to their hillside villas for self-imposed quarantine, it was Christians who stayed amongst the dead and the dying. After all, Christians reasoned. They did not serve a crucified Lord who sacrificed. Did they not serve a crucified Lord who sacrificed his own well-being for them? One of the results of Christians staying and not running in fear from those plague-infested cities was that the church grew exponentially, astronomically. The pagans, the pagan gods, had fled with their followers, and only Jesus of Nazareth remained, present in the love and nursing care of his followers. Church, Christ City, we are called to be witnesses to a different kingdom in situations just like this. So may the Lord find us faithful. Would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Today's reading comes from Matthew 6, 5 to 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray. Father, you are the King of Ages. You are both our Father, so personal, so intimate, and also the King of Ages, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God over all the gods. Thank you for this morning. Help us to hear from you, to be with you, in your son Jesus' name, amen. Why pray? Why pray? For, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at prayer in the sermon. Uh, we're going to see Jesus unpack our hearts in prayer, and also Jesus unpack our, our contents uh, in prayer, what, what we actually pray about. But the next two weeks will be for nothing. there will be a waste. I promise you this. Uh, If we cannot first answer the question, why pray? Why should we pray? Why why do you pray? If we're being honest, many of us would answer that question with something like, I pray because I'm supposed to. A Mariko read this morning, Jesus saying, and when you pray. So Jesus expects me to pray. I should pray. It's a bit like eating my vegetables. I don't like it, but I do it because... I guess I'm supposed to. I don't know. Other people are doing it. Or, or maybe you pray uh, because your why is more spiritual. Uh, you feel some sort of connection to the divine, the, the transcendent when you sit and meditate or repeat words over and over and over again. So you pray because of some divine connection. Or maybe your prayer life is really just more pragmatic. You, you kind of want to cover your bases just in case something happens when you pray. You probably should pray, right? I mean, to, to some gods, to somebody, might as well cover our bases. Why do you pray? If we're very, very honest, we soon realize that those whys the pragmatic why, the transcendent why, uh, the I, I'm supposed to why ultimately fail us. And how do I know this? If there's one confession I've heard on repeat over and over and over again over the years, it's some iteration of I don't pray. I don't know how to pray. prayer seems pointless. I don't pray. Further, that confession has come from my own lips. I, I, I get this. When it comes to prayer, we need a compelling why. Why pray? Now you might not realize this, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has actually already given us the answer to why pray. Do you remember how each of the Beatitudes ended? And of course you know these off by heart, but I'll repeat them just in case you didn't memorize them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall receive mercy, it continues. For they shall see God, for they shall be called sons of God. Whatever this good life looks like, we know, we are certain that that at at the center of it is relationship with God, is being with our Father. And so why pray? Why pray? We pray to experience, enjoy, know, and connect with our Heavenly Father. It's that simple. We pray because that's how we get to be with our Father. And and this is where I think the conversation on prayer typically misses it. Assuming that we all share the same why, some authors, speakers, then get into the details of prayer. Pray like this, and here's this strategy, and here's this technique. But we have to stop. Uh, In his book, A Praying Life, Paul uh, Paul Miller illustrates this mistake by suggesting that it's a bit like driving and focusing on the windshield. Or sitting around a table with family and friends and and focusing on the conversation. The windshield only exists to help you see where you're going, to help you drive. And, And the conversation is only a means to an end of getting to know other people. We can't focus on the thing itself. We have to have a compelling why. And so it is with prayer. What we'll find over the next two weeks is that the how and what of prayer, those questions, which are important questions, they almost become obvious when we answer the question of, of why do we pray? Why do we pray? Today we'll see that Jesus, with this why in mind, has us consider the heart of prayer, our hearts in prayer. Firstly, he'll ask us to see fractured hearts in prayer. So that's point one, a fractured heart in prayer. Point two, then, is what a whole heart in prayer looks like in contrast to a fractured heart in prayer. And point three is the fatherly difference. Taking notes, really simple. A fractured heart in prayer, a whole heart in prayer, and the fatherly difference, point three. Ready? You guys awake? I know it's early. It's technically nine o'clock. That's fine. We'll be okay. Bible's open. Verses five and seven of Matthew 6 if you don't have a Bible, grab one at the back, take it, keep it, it's our gift to you, or just download an app on your phone right now. Okay? Matthew 6, 5-7. to seven. Read with me. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And let's skip down to verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Let's stop there. Heath helped us see this last week with almsgiving or giving to the needy, and we'll see this in two weeks uh, with fasting. But in this section of the sermon, Jesus is drilling down into the motives of our religious life. Into the motives of our religious life, which might seem either strange or irrelevant to some of you because you don't actually consider yourself to be that religious. You'd say, I'm not a religious person. And Jesus says, that's actually not true. We, we all have a religious life of some sort. We all, in some way, shape, or form, whether it's formal or informal, connect to the divine or the transcendent in some way. It might be homebrewed or it might be very official, but we all do that. And in fact, Jesus reminds us in our text this morning that this plurality, of relating to the divine in prayer in particular, is not new. Notice, he's speaking this morning both to the hypocrites and to the Gentiles. So the hypocrites in Matthew's gospel are the religious leaders. Those who outwardly are very religious, seemingly moral people. And the Gentiles are basically the non-Jews, the the, the pagans, the the Greeks, the, the other people. So Jesus is painting a large spectrum for us this morning. Both of those people, he says, are praying. More than that, though, he's going to show us how both these religious and and non-religious people, seemingly, can miss the heart of prayer. They both can begin from this fractured heart. And he begins by taking aim at the religious. Look at verse 5 again with me. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, observant Jews in Jesus' day would, would pray three times a day. Three times a day. And they would go about doing their day, getting their groceries, paying their bills, doing whatever they did. And wherever they were at that time of prayer, they would stop And pray at that place. So, in line at the bank, stop and pray. Right? In line at the grocery store, stop and pray. Uh, Having a shower, stop and pray. Right? They'd stop and pray wherever they were. And it turns out that some religious leaders, it just so happens, just happen to be uh, like at the pulpit at the time of prayer. Oh, guess this is a good time for me to pray out loud. Or they just so happen to be at at the corner of of commercial and, and Broadway. And it just, just so happens, I'll, I'll pray out loud for everybody to hear. It's a bit like, and I'm not endorsing this movie at all, so please don't judge me, but it's a bit like Anchorman, where an anchorman, Ron Burgundy, goes to the jazz club, and they're like, you know, you know play a, a flute solo for us. He's like, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. You guys haven't seen this movie. <laughs> all these Christians, like, what is wrong with him? And he pulls, like, the flute out of his sleeve, and he, like, plays, like, a beautiful, like, you know, flute solo. It's a bit like that, Right? They find themselves in these public places. I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. Oh, let, let me just recite this theologically rich prayer for you all. Like you see the heart motive here. It's to get the praise and the applause of other people. They don't love to pray because they love being with their Father. They love to pray. Jesus says that. They love to pray standing on the street corners and in the synagogue that they may be seen by others. And to the religious who use prayer as a way to flex their spiritual and theological insight, Jesus says they have received their reward in full. They got the praise. They got the respect they were looking for. The problem is, if they have received their reward in full, that you cannot then be rewarded both by men and the Father. Either you seek, Jesus says, earthly praise or fatherly approval. The receiving of one of those gifts or rewards forfeits the other. You can't hold on to both. Now let's pause for a second. Because most of us, and I know this because I know many of you, if not all of you, most of us are not seminary grads or like theological nerds. There's a few nerds in here and you know who you are. Most of us aren't those people. And so I'm talking about the religious leaders, and you're like, oh, that's not me. I'll I'll wait for the next point when it's about me. But this is not about me. Let, let, Let me suggest something here. I think Jesus is also speaking, if I can say this really gently, and you know I love you, I think Jesus is also speaking to the man or woman here this morning who is sitting here and has never prayed out loud for fear they'll say something wrong. See, at root, the same thing driving hypocrites to pray big, loud, public prayers is the exact same thing that keeps many of us quiet in prayer meetings. It's other people. It's other people. The word for hypocrite we find in our text this morning, did you see that in verse 5? Is a word typically used to describe an actor in the ancient world. Someone who would put on a mask, literally. And some of us this morning are terrified that our masks of good, respectable, knowledgeable Christian will be shattered if we ever allowed people to hear the prayers that we actually want to pray to our Father. Like prayers that are full of doubt. Prayers that are full of theological inaccuracies. Prayers that are full of anger and confusion and wondering. I get this temptation. As someone who prays before all of you each week, I get the temptation to put on the mask and have you think something of me. But as long as our why in prayer centers around what other people will think of us, we will always miss the intimacy our Father wants to have with us. That's the religious people. But it's not just religious people who have fractured, hypocritical hearts in prayer. Next, Jesus turns His gaze to the irreligious. Or we could say for our context to the the, the spiritualists, the the, the New Age people among us. And He says this in Matthew 6-7, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. the The phrase here translated as "empty phrases" is a word in the original language uh, that, that they think came from a name of a, either a general who stammered and stuttered a lot in his sort of public speaking. Or in a poet who is long and wordy and tedious? And is there nothing worse than long and wordy and tedious poetry? Amen? No? All poetry fans. Man, hate man, love poetry. Weird crowd. But you get the point where the Gentiles are doing. Gentiles are going around thinking that if they pray long enough, have the right formula, Do the right steps, and if we just do these steps, then God will be forced, he'll be compelled to answer us. If I just muster it up in me, if I'm just good enough, or have the secret knowledge, then then God will answer me. And we have a, a crazy picture of this pagan way of praying in 1 Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. If you don't know this story, this is like what I would read as a kid when I didn't like the Bible. But it's like the cool story of like Elijah facing off against the prophets of Baal. And, and Israel at the time of this story was not being faithful to Yahweh. They were worshiping these false gods. And so uh, Elijah has these prophets of Baal meet him on Mount Carmel. They set up an altar and put a cow on it or a bull on it. And there they begin to pray. The prophets of Baal go first. And our text says, they are praying from morning until noon, and nothing happens. And because Elijah is amazing, this is what he says to the prophets. I love this. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for, for he is a God. Either he is musing, like deep in thought, or he is relieving himself, right, in the bathroom, or he is on a journey, or, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Don't you just love Elijah I love Elijah. Totally wouldn't fit in in our PC culture, but Elijah's the best. So the prophets doubled down. They're like, you know what? We've got to pray harder. And they begin to cut themselves. Maybe our blood, our physical blood, will appease the gods. Then the gods will send down fire from heaven and burn up the sacrifice. And as midday passed, we keep on reading, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, or, or the sacrifice. Listen. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And the silence is its deafening. And into this deafening silence, Elijah steps. He prays a very simple prayer and immediately fire from heaven consumes the offering, the altar, and the water that they had poured on it for good measure again, we might not think that we pray like the pagans. Like, that sounds crazy. We chant and we meditate, we say, for the physiological benefit. We go to temples. We light incense. We fly flags. Learn convoluted prayer exercises. We ring bells. Just in case, we say, it actually does something. But no, no, no. We don't pray like the pagans. If the error of the hypocrites is that so worried about what other people think, they don't think of God at all, but only other people, the error of the pagans and every New Age spiritualist hawking best-selling books is that they have thought of God wrongly. Elijah and Jesus come together to remind us that the gods are petty deities that can be reached only if they're not doing something else. Going to the bathroom or sleeping? These are God's so small, so dumb in the truest sense that they can be manipulated. Christ City, when you pray, is there a thought in the back of your head that if you just pray long enough and hard enough, you can twist God's arm? You can make Him do something. Jesus tells a parable, a story with a point in Luke 18 verses 1 to 8 about uh, the persistent widow. I can summarize it for us like this. It's essentially about a widow who is experiencing some sort of injustice in her life and goes day and night to what we're told is a judge who neither respects God, uh, sorry, fears God nor respects man. Basically, it's a corrupt, evil judge. And eventually, this corrupt, evil judge gives in to the persistent widow who needs justice just to get her off his back. Just to say, you're annoying me, leave. Now how some in the church have interpreted this parable is that we need to be like the widow. And we need to wear God down with our constant prayers. And if we wear God down with our constant prayers, then He's obligated to speak to us. He's obligated to, to do something for us. And that's wrong. And it's not what the parable is teaching. What this parable is teaching is this. If the unjust judge who does not fear God nor respects man, if even he gives in to the widow's request, how much more should you and I persist in prayer knowing our Heavenly Father is good and just and loving. And as we'll see next week, our Father Our God. Jesus says more specifically, He is our Father who knows what we need before we even ask Him. Now the point of Jesus saying this is not to say that we should not ask for anything because, well, God already knows. No, next week we'll see that Jesus actually commands us to ask for things in prayer. We are to ask for things in prayer. Rather... Jesus is making, in Matthew 6, the same point He's making in Luke 18. And it's this. Our Father is not some small, impotent deity, some minor player in the cosmic realm. Not only is our Father all-powerful, but He is all-good, seeing and knowing all. And Christ said, I have to ask you, how does that not change the way you pray? Right? It's a difference between talking to, to somebody like, who's just a low-level worker at their company and talking to the CEO. Like, like, who do you want to talk to when you want things to change? It's not that newly hired employee. It's the guy who founded the thing. So we come to prayer with fractured hearts when we don't think of our Father at all, or when we do, we think Him to be small, able to be manipulated only we worked harder, did something special. What does it mean then to have not a fractured heart, but a whole heart in prayer? Read verse 6 and then verse 8 with me. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's down to verse 8 with me. Do not be like them, That's the Gentiles. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. As I was thinking about uh, how to illustrate or what to say next at this point in the sermon, I I was working at my house and I noticed that my door handle to the room I was in began to shake. And I could tell by the way it was like barely shaking that it wasn't my wife trying to get in or my other two sons who can just open a door, but my third son, my youngest son, who's just like little and trying really hard to open a door and it's very cute. Uh, if if you know him. And suddenly it clicked. It clicked. Marcus, my youngest son, he didn't want to get into that room to be with me so that his other brothers could see that that, that he was my favorite. Right? I, I know this because they were at school. His other brothers weren't even around. And he wouldn't want to get into that room with me if he knew what was waiting for him was an angry, annoyed, cold father. He wanted to get in that room with me simply because he knew that behind that door he would find his loving Father. The point of what Jesus is trying to say here is not to forbid public prayers. Jesus prayed public prayers. The point of what Jesus is trying to say here is not to forbid long prayers. Jesus prayed long prayers. The point is that when we no longer pray with other people in mind or some wrong, small view of God in mind, what we're left with, what remains, is simply praying to be with our Father. Do you notice what Jesus said? But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Another translation puts it like this Who is in that secret place? Do you want communion with your Father? Do you want relationship and intimacy with your Heavenly Father? Jesus is saying, Let me tell you where you can find it. Let me tell you where to go. He's saying, The Father is not in the place of pretense. There you will find many people, a book deal the well wishes of many, the applause of this world, but you will not find our Father. Where is He? He's in the secret place where prayer has no other purpose or function other than bringing us to our eternal Father who loves us. Jesus says that He's not in the place of repetitive babbling, of secret techniques. There you'll find that you will look good what with your ability to experience the divine based on your home-brewed spirituality. Sure, you might discover self-reliance, what you think to be the truest expression of your spirituality, but you will not find our Father. No. He's in the secret place where prayer has no other purpose or function than bringing us to the eternal Father who loves us. And here's the key. Here's the thing. It is from being with our Father in prayer that the entire Christian life flows. That all of this flows. In the beginning of his book on the Lord's Prayer, uh, Daryl Johnson, who's a local pastor, theologian, he notes that the only, things the, gosp- the only thing the Gospels record, the first disciples of Jesus asking Jesus to teach them, is found in Luke 11.1. 1. When the disciples asked Jesus this, Lord, teach us to pray. And Johnson continues to write this. There is no record of anyone asking Jesus to teach them to lead or to counsel or to heal or to cast out demons or to preach. They may have asked him, but there's no record of them doing so. Why? Perhaps it is because they could see that Jesus is leading, his counseling. His healing, his casting out, and preaching ministry emerged out of this relationship with his Father. And they could see that the key to that relationship was prayer. Jesus, after all, was always slipping away to pray. If I can drive home the point even further. The word for room we find in our text in Matthew 6 this morning, it, it could just mean room. It could just mean uh, in a room, in a house, where like, your broom is kept and other sort of odds and ends are kept. It could just mean room. But it's also a word that's translated in Luke 12 as storeroom or barn, a place where needed supplies are kept. And I wonder if Jesus, when he uses this word, is wanting us to make note not only of the privacy and the secrecy of such a room, but also of the treasure and the strength and the power, the supplies we are to find in that room with our Father. Let me say this at the risk of offending some. This is the second hard thing I want to say today, but I want to say it gently. Some of you don't attend our monthly prayer meetings because you don't think that they're practical enough. And I know that because that's my own heart in this. Evening on finances, on parenting, caring for the poor. Now that's something we can get behind. A little more practical, a little more boots on the ground. Yes, yes, and yes to all those things. We have, we are, and we will continue to have those evenings. But if we think for a second that we can do any of those things, parent, handle money without falling in love with it, care for the poor, if we think that we can do any of those things as a church here on this corner of the city without being in an intimate, prayerful relationship with our Father, we are out of luck. It won't happen. Everything starts here. It did for Jesus and it does for us. The person with the whole heart in prayer desires only to be with the Father because they know, they know that just as a branch needs a vine, that that's where all life, indeed all power, indeed all the supplies are found. Point three, the fatherly difference. The fatherly difference. Christ City, our prayer lives are a real-time, real-world manifestation of who we think and believe God to be. If God, to us, is a relentless, task-oriented perfectionist who looks suspiciously like me, then you will always pray or not pray like a hypocrite. If that's who God is, you will always pray or not pray, whatever it is, like a hypocrite. Because God demands perfection, and so I better bring Him perfection. If God is a small, petty deity that can be manipulated by my technique and my secret knowledge and my wordsmithing and my earnestness, then you will always pray like a pagan and God will always be to you a small God that you can manipulate. We all pray. The question is, who do you believe we are praying to? There are more riches to be mined. We'll see this in the Sermon on the Mount as it pertains to prayer. We'll see this next week. We'll see this in Matthew 7 when we get there. But all of the riches in the sermon as it pertains to prayer, they all hang on this one word, Father. Father. We can pray bold, Lord's prayer-type prayers because He is our Father. And we can pray big, Matthew 7, ask for anything type prayers because He is your Father. And all of us must come to a point where we love our Father. We love our Dad more than the praises of people. Where we love our Father and realize that that means He cannot be controlled or manipulated by our piety. That He's bigger than that. This is the fatherly difference in prayer. Again, we have in our text this morning the uncomfortable and strange language of rewards. Did you catch that? Jesus said, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Father who discerns the fractured heart from the whole heart in prayer will one day lay all things bare. All things bare. Jesus says that the Father sees and the Father knows. And from that place of perfectly seeing, perfectly knowing, the Father will either reward us or say, actually, you've already received your reward in full in this life from these people. The Father wants our hearts. And whether or not we decide to give ourselves fully to Him, outwardly, internally, has eternal ramifications. Let me beg you this morning, entrust yourself to the Father. The prophets of Baal thought they could spill their blood to get God to do what they wanted Him to do. And the response was silent. No one answered. No one paid attention. The good news this morning is that the Father has sent the Son to do with the Son's blood on the cross what we never imagined He would or could do. And the response from the heavens is our salvation. Our rescue. The Father to whom Jesus invites us to pray is the one who did not spare His own Son. Our father heard the cries of his people, and he hears your cries this morning, and he was not silent. He answered us. He paid attention, and he made a way for us to be with him, not only forever, but now. See, why do we pray? To be with our father. But how do we get to him? How do we get there in the first place? only by believing and trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, and our Father's ultimate answer to our prayers. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.